Well, our kids can be dismissed to Kids Church. And while they're being dismissed, I want to encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 29. Romans chapter 9 and verses 19 through 29. I don't know if you've ever given um, any thought to this, the idea of what it means for God to be God and what that actually in, entails. Maybe in some ways we have all thought or maybe at some point in, in life when we think about everything that's going on in this world, we begin to question and wonder, does God really know what he's doing? Does he know what he's up to? And maybe even in some ways... Um, very loosely, thinking, you know, if I was God, this is what I would do. Because when we, when we look at the way that things are in this world and we see all the, the, the suffering, we see all the problems, we see all the things that we've, especially that we've been seeing in the news over the last um, few weeks, we really wonder, what, what is God up to? When we consider it in very spir- in spiritual sense, in a spiritual sense, when we think about salvation, why some people are saved and why other people are not saved, we also wonder what, how does this all work or how does this all come together in the way that God is governed? How is this working in his purposes? And there, there are very easy answers that we can throw out there about maybe why some people are saved and why others are not saved. Well, some have received Christ and some have rejected Christ. But there's, there's really an overarching purpose or even a, a larger answer to that in how God is working both in the way that he saves and also in the way that he judges. And so these are some of the questions that are being asked here in the, the book of Romans, particularly in Romans chapter 9, as Paul is, is thinking through some things that maybe some questions of those in the church are asking of themselves, or they're asking uh, of Paul. So as we think about what's going on in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and, and just, I think I've said this before, but I want to say it again, that Romans 9, 10, and 11 is, is probably some of the most difficult chapters in all the Bible. To, there is, there is a, a massive debate about what these texts actually mean and what they are saying. There's obviously some common ground that everybody has about what the meaning of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is, but how that actually plays out in our life is, is uh, there's a lot of debate that goes on with respect to that. And so let me just, as we've been going through Romans 9 and up to this point where we are, let me, let me summarize because everything that we're looking at is connected to what's preceded. And it's important for us to know what Paul actually said before for us to understand what he's going to say right now here in our text in Romans 9, 19 through 29. So the most pressing question of Romans 9 through 11 is how do we make sense of the failure of Israel to believe in the gospel? Why is there a wholesale rejection of Jesus as Messiah by Israel, while at the same time the Gentiles who are not the covenant people of God are now becoming the covenant people of God by faith in the Lord Jesus? If the gospel is good news for Israel, as it is for the Gentiles, yet the gospel of Israel's Messiah has not saved them. 
how can it be considered good news? So this is the question that Paul is asking. So as Jesus Christ has come, he's come to Israel. He was himself an Israelite. He was a Jew. He ministered primarily to Israel. He died on the cross. He rose again. He ascended into the heavens. And then he commissioned his apostles, who were all Jews, who were all Israel themselves, to go and to preach that gospel, not only to Jerusalem, but also to all the nations. And then at the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved, who were all Jews, who were all saved there in Jerusalem. There the church flourished, and many people were added daily to the church. And yet, there has been a wholesale rejection by the majority of Israel to this gospel of Israel's Messiah, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Paul is pondering this question because these are questions that are being asked. These are questions on the mind of some of these believing Jews. Why is it that so many of Israel has rejected Christ as the Messiah? And why is it that now the Gentiles are coming in? It seems like that once the message gets to the Gentiles, they're all happily receiving the gospel message and coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. At the same time, the Jews are rejecting that message. So that's the question that Paul is dealing with here in Romans 9 through 11. Why is this happening? Now, this is even a legitimate question that we can ask in general. For instance, if there are people who continually hear the gospel, and the gospel is the power of the God to salvation, yet they reject it, is it really good news and is it really powerful? So, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, we can give a short answer of why it is that people are rejecting the gospel, right? Maybe we can say it relates to free will. Somebody has their, the, God has given them an aid in their personhood to respond or to reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that may be the answer. But I think there's, there's a deeper question that, because you wonder, as you tell these people about Jesus and you read in your Bible that the gospel of God is the power and the salvation, and yet they continue to reject it. You might be thinking, why is it happening? Or maybe to think about it in other terms. Maybe think more personally. You have kids. You've raised them in your home. You've raised them in church. And yet there's some that embrace the gospel, and there are others that reject the gospel. And you wonder, what, what is it that happened? Why did, where did it all go wrong in that regard? And you maybe start reflecting on your own, you know, how you parented and what you did and what you should have done. But you have one child over here who faithfully loves the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives himself fully to the church to serve the church. And then you have this child over here that you raised the exact same way, and yet they didn't want to have anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. They might they pursue maybe another religion or altogether they're an atheist of some sort. And so that's the question that I think that Paul is dealing with here. Is the gospel really good news when you see all these people that are rejecting the gospel? Is it really powerful? And so this is the question that's being asked. This is the question that's being pondered by Paul as it relates to Israel. And the reason that it's specific with Israel is because Israel was God's people. From the Old Testament, who God had chosen for himself 
to be his people. To redeem them as his people. It was to him that it was to uh, Israel that God gave the covenants, the promises, the law. It was to Israel that God gave the Messiah even. So they had all of these privileges. They had a head start on everybody else. And yet they rejected wholesale Jesus as that Messiah. Why? Well, that's the question that Paul's trying to answer here in this text. And so that's, that's what we see in verses 1 through 5, which establishes common ground between Paul and his readers, specifically Israel. Paul acknowledges Israel has been truly blessed and is a privileged people. In fact, his heart aches at the very fact that Israel is consistently and routinely rejecting Jesus Christ. These are his own people. He himself is a Jew. And he loves these people. And he has made it his prerogative that wherever he goes to establish a new church, he first goes to the synagogue and he preaches first to the Jewish people. And yet in the synagogues, the Jewish people continually reject him. And then in verses 6 through 13, he explains that even though Israel receives the promises, the law, and the covenant, God's word has not failed. So there's an accusation that if Israel is routinely rejecting Jesus the Messiah, and they are not saved, then that means that the promises of God has failed. And Paul says, absolutely not. And so from that section, he argues that Israel has always been defined by the promises, not ethnicity. So to claim to be Abraham's children, to be a literal, physical descendant of Israel, does not matter. So in other words, what these Jews were doing, what Israel was doing, is they were holding up their right. I am a child of Abraham. I have the right to the promises. I have the right to salvation. And so Paul establishes that your right as a child of Abraham, as a literal descendant of Abraham, does not matter go anywhere with God. And he shows that in various ways in that section, how Abraham had Ishmael, who was his firstborn son, and he had Isaac. And yet the promises did not go to Ishmael, it went to Isaac. And then Isaac had twins. He had Esau and he had Jacob. And Esau was the first one that came out of the womb. It was his inherent right to receive the blessings from Isaac. But the blessings went to Jacob instead. So it, it didn't make any difference that Ishmael was the firstborn of Abraham or that Esau was technically the firstborn of Abraham. What mattered is which one God had chosen to be the child of the promise. Isaac was chosen. Jacob was chosen. And so, you know, Esau, even though he was born first, Jacob was the child of the promise, and in, in that section, Paul emphasizes that the people of God are not of works, but of him who calls by grace through the Lord Jesus. And as he emphasizes the works in that section, he is making it very clear, which is one of the major themes of this book, is that where does justification come from? Where is salvation? Is it by works, or is it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then... What we looked at last week in verses 14 through 18 was emphasizes that God is under no obligation to save Israel. So Israel is saying that we, you're obligated. We're children of Abraham. We have the law. We have the promises. We have the covenant. 
You are obligated to save us. And yet Paul argues that God is under no obligation to save anyone. In fact, he says that he will have mercy on whomever he has mercy. And he will harden, he will judge whomever he pleases. Why? Because he's God. And then we're told in that section that even when God hardens and judges, it does not thwart his saving purposes, but rather advances. And he gives the illustration of Pharaoh in Egypt's rejection of the one true God, which created no hindrance. Instead, it magnified and displayed the power of God among all the nations. So that leads us to where we are this morning, beginning with verse 19, where this objection is leveled, or this accusation is leveled against God in verse 19 and 20, which says, "Ye will say to them, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thane form say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? So there's an objection There's an accusation. It comes specifically from the content of verses 14 through 18. If God has mercy on whomever he pleases, and God judges whomever he pleases, and even in judgment God's saving powers advance, then why does God find fault with anyone? He has no right to blame us, remember? Now remember, this is Paul's target is unbelieving Israel. They claim this right as God's people from their father Abraham. Even more, this is the Israel who takes the promises, the covenants, and the law seriously. In regard to the law, unbelieving Israel works. They work the law. Then we find in verse 16, they will or they desire or they exert themselves to keep the law. And now, unbelieving Israel is told it does not matter. God is not obligated to save you. And in keeping with the charge of unrighteousness in verse 14, the blame is shifted to God. So they've leveled the accusation that God is unrighteous. And now, here in verses 19 through 20, we see that they're leveling this accusation against God. That if this is the way that you operate, and this is the way that you act, then why are we blamed for this? Why are we being judged for the way that you, as God, has sovereignly orchestrated the events of history to work in such a way. So the blame is being shifted here to God. And they're saying, basically, God made me this way. It's not my fault. And why is God judging me? And then what this accusation does is it shifts the blame from God to man, setting man over against God. And the way that Paul responds to this is by putting man in his place. Now, if you'll notice there in verse 20, He uses this phrase, oh man, oh man. It sounds a little bit different when we say it in English, oh man. But the way that he's using it is not in that same way. It's actually meant to be a title of demoting them something, to put them in the place and recognize who it is that you are and who it is that you're actually talking to or making these accusations again. You are a man. Or to say it another way, from the way that the word comes out of the Hebrew expression, I think this is where this word's coming from, is man basically means of the dust. 
So Paul's giving this address to remind those who are leveling these accusations against God, questioning God, and why God asks like this, you aren't just the frail children of the dust. You were nothing but dust. How dare you question God? How dare you make these accusations? How dare you level these charges against you? How dare you set yourself over against God? You are just a man. And this reminds the addressee that he is the creature of the dust, that it was God who was the creator who fashioned man from the dust and breathed into him the breath of life. And now this mere creature talks back to God as though he has some inherent right and how the sovereign creator governs all things. Now, as I was thinking about these verses, I, it really feels a lot like the way the book of Job as a, as a whole, how it feels, and, and especially near the ending of the book of Job. If you remember, if you've read the book of Job, you remember this. But at the end, Job's been thinking, why am I going through all these sufferings? And what's interesting about Job is that we as the reader, as we're reading the book of Job, we know exactly why Job is going through what he's going. We know the background to it, but this is happening in real space and time to Job, and he has no idea why it is that his family is gone. His wealth is gone. He has no idea why he has boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Why is all this happening? Job does not know. And so he's asking these questions, and he has these these four friends, which weren't really good friends, to be honest with you. But they're all trying to help him make sense of all of this. And in the midst of this, Job starts leveling accusations against God and questioning God. And then at the end of the book of Job, he's caught up into this whirlwind. And then we say, this is what God says to Job. Who is this who obscured my counsel with ignorant words? And when God is finished, Job is not interested in answers anymore. And he responds, I am so insignificant, how can I answer you? I think this is the same feel that we find here in this text. Now, I want to say this. I think this is important. Questions are always welcome. Questions. Why, God? Why? Questions are welcome. We see this in the Psalms, all over the Psalms. The psalmist David is questioning God. They're always welcome. Accusations, on the other hand, are not. They're a different story. And so these are accusations about God's governance, about God's sovereignty, about God and his creative right. And it's essentially man setting himself over above God and thinking that I can do a better job with this than you have. This just makes no sense. And, and here you are blaming me. And that's where Paul offers this retort. And he says, oh man, you don't even know what you're saying. You don't even know what you're talking about. We are just frail creatures of the dust. And so what Paul does is he anchors his assertion that the creator has the right over the creation by using a quote, an imagery from Isaiah 29 and verse 16, and maybe also Jeremiah chapter 18. Both texts are used, the metaphor of the potter and the clay, emphasizing that humans are nothing more than clay pots that God has shaped for his own purpose. The Isaiah passage is most likely what we see at the very end of verse 20, 
where it says, why have you made me like this? You can find that, the, the, the word almost verbatim in Isaiah 29 and verse 16. And so if this is the case, if this comes from this Isaiah text, then like Isaiah, Paul is addressing the judgment of Israel in the same way. As a result of Israel's rejection of God, Isaiah pronounces judgment on them, but that is not the end of the story. According to Isaiah, God will do a new thing for his people and bring restoration. In a similar way, Paul notes that God is judging Israel for the rejection of the Lord Jesus as Messiah. And at the same time, this rejection brings a restoration of the people of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And since the potter has to write over the clay, he can fashion it however he pleases. So if you look in verse 21, notice what it says. He's asking these rhetorical questions. Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for the for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So what we see, especially when you look in verse 21, you have the, these imageries, you have these words, these metaphors, and the way this metaphor breaks down is God is the potter, and the same lump is humanity. And we can actually look back at the various ways in which Paul has shown this from the Old Testament. One of the first places is back in verse 6, where he says, not all of Israel is Israel. All of Israel is the same lump, but there are different uses. Abraham had several sons, but the divine potter only fashioned Isaac as the child of the promise. Jacob had Esau and Jacob, but the divine potter fashioned Jacob as the child of the promise. And then the most recent was Israel, Egypt, and Pharaoh. And the Exodus event, all the same lump. But the divine potter used Israel for honor and Pharaoh for dishonor. And then what follows in verses 22 through 23 is an explanation of the divine potter's choice to honor some and dishonor others for a purpose. He dishonors some to make his power known, and he honors some to make his glory known. Both God's power and glory are displayed in the types of vessels that he makes. Now, at least in my translation, I don't know if you all have this, but in verses 22 through 23, you have this word vessels. And Paul is using this word to speak about humanity in general. But it's also a word that is used with the imagery of pottery and clay. It can be used to describe a jar or a dish that the potter makes. So Paul is leveraging the word for all of its, its nuance. So he's talking about people that are vessels, but he's keeping this in this imagery with the potter in the clay. The, you know, the potter makes bowls, and potter makes plates, and the potter makes uh, jars. They all have different uses. They all come from the, the same clay, from the same potter, yet they're being used in various different ways. And so he gives us two types of vessels, that God has shaped, generally speaking. The first type of vessels that we see in verse 22 are objects of God's wrath to make his power known. 
Notice this wrath is not instantaneous, but is delayed because God is patient and long-suffering. In Exodus, God's patience was shown to Pharaoh in Egypt over and over again. There is a reason why there are 11 plagues. You may have not given this any thought at all, but there is a good reason why there are 11 plagues. Because before every plague, Moses goes back to Pharaoh and calls him to worship the one true God and to let the people of God go. And every time that Pharaoh says no, God brings more judgment upon him. And even with the, at the end, when he finally lets them go, which is the ultimate act of God's judgment on, on Egypt, was through the Red Sea event. It's a path of salvation or a path of redemption uh, for the people of God. There's their Red Sea. God parts it. They make their way on dry land. And when the last foot of Israel steps off, and as the chariots are coming and barreling behind them, then all of a sudden we see God's judgment as he closes that sea in and destroys the people. And so even in that incident, you still see God's patience with with Egypt and Pharaoh. If they would have left them alone, they they never would have found themselves in that sea. And so there's this emphasis that even in the context of God's wrath, God is patient, God is long-suffering. And this is what Peter tells us. That God is long-suffering and he is patient and he gives us a reason. Not willing that any should perish. But all come to salvation. And so even in the context of God's wrath that's being displayed, there is this element of patience. So he showed this patient with Egypt and Pharaoh. They rejected God's grace and as a consequence, God judged him. And for Israel, God was continually patient and enduring toward their rebellious disposition. You can just follow the trajectory of the story in the Old Testament. Beginning with them coming out of Egypt, they've always been a people that were rebellious toward God. And yet God was always long-suffering, and even up to this present time that we see here that, that Paul is speaking of, Here, Israel is still rejecting God, and God is still being patient with them. And I'll even say that today, that even though wholesale, the majority of Israel, is rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, God is still patient, and he's still calling them to himself so that they will see that Jesus truly is the Messiah who died for their sins and rose again for them from the grave. And so the point no, now, that, now, what Paul says about these vessels whose end is destruction is that they display God's power. Going back to the Exodus event, Egypt and Pharaoh's rejection and God's judgment through the plagues culminating with the Red Sea amplified God's power not only to Egypt and Israel who saw it, but also to all the other nations who heard of it. In judgment, God was making his power known To all people. And the point that Paul is making in Romans 9 is the rejection of the Lord Jesus as the Messiah by Israel does not undermine God's power. In fact, it does the opposite. There is no hindrance to the saving power of the gospel because of Israel's unbelief. Israel's unbelief has displayed the saving power of the gospel to all the nations. As a consequence of Israel's unbelief, what is happening? 
All the Gentiles are coming in and are being saved. God's power is being made known in their judgment, in their rejection, and in their unbelief. Which, by the way, that's good news for us today, isn't it? Because if Israel had not rejected and salvation had not been extended to the Gentiles, then we as Gentile people would not be here today. And so God's power has been clearly displayed over the last 2,000 years as the consequence of this. Now, I want to go back and make, this, make at least this one point that comes out of this as it relates to God's wrath and his power being known, but also in keeping with his patience. God has always been patient, and he has great forbearance in delaying his wrath and his judgment on people. And so we see how it's illustrated in Egypt and Pharaoh, also with Israel. But I think it's important for us to remember that God is patient with us today. That God is patient in those who are unbelievers today and delaying his judgment. I don't think we people really grasp or understand that the fact that they wake up as an unbeliever, the fact that they wake up and they have another day of life is a testimony of God's grace and his patience toward them in delaying his judgment. The fact that Jesus Christ has not come back yet means that God is patient and he's waiting and he's calling more people to himself. But there will be an end to God's patience one day. And when God ends that patience, then he will come with judgment. And in his judgment, he will show his power. Now, I want you to think about this as we, as we push this and leverage this idea of God demonstrating his power in wrath. I want you to think about God's wrath in terms of the cross. On the cross, the Lord Jesus bore the wrath of God for your sins and my sins. That's the reason there is salvation for us, because we have all sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's just wrath on us forever. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross was the object, was the vessel of wrath. He took my wrath. He took your wrath on himself. He was our substitute, taking our penalty for our sins on the cross. Does the judgment of sin on the cross show weakness or power? What is the cross? It is power, isn't it? Isn't there a song that we love to sing here? We've been seeing, church has been seeing it for years. There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. There's wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. The cross is a display. The, the wrath, Jesus being that, that vessel of God's wrath, taking my punishment and your punishment for our sins on himself was a display of power. Not weakness, but power. And that's why the, the, the idea of the cross has been transformed. Because in that first century culture, to display the cross like we do it today would have been unthinkable. But here we are, as a church, sitting behind me is a Massive cross. Why? Power. There's power. The power to save is in the cross where sin was judged for all people who will call on Jesus as their Lord and Savior. When Jesus comes again in glory, 
will his power be diminished by those who do not believe? When he comes again, he will come to judge. Will his power be diminished? Oh, no. His power will be on display. So when the Lord Jesus comes again, his power will be as such that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Those on the earth, those under the earth, every single person will bow and confess because there is power even in his judgment and it will be displayed. Now the second vessel that we see in this text are vessels are object of God's mercy to make his glory known. So in his judgment, he makes his power known in his mercy. These vessels, these objects, us, his people who he saved, they're God's mercy to make his glory known. And not only is God's glory known through them, but they themselves are prepared for glory, as we find in the text. Glory describes the final destiny for those who trust in the Lord Jesus. The splendor of God's glory will be shown among all those who believe on the Lord Jesus as they are gloriously transformed, as we see in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. And so interestingly enough, that as objects of God's mercy, we are showing his glory We actually find in Romans that we have fallen short of God's glory. But through Jesus, that glory is restored. And we are walking images today of the glory of God. And not only are we walking images of God's glory, but we are prepared beforehand for that place where we receive his glory in an incredible way. Now, there's another component to keep in mind concerning the vessels of wrath in verse 22 and the verses of and the, the vessels of mercy in verse 23 not only is God's power shown in the judgment of those who reject the Lord Jesus but his power in wrath will lead to his glory in those who believe and what i mean by this is that the rejection of the Lord Jesus by some will actually lead to the salvation of others in the Lord Jesus This point has already been made with Egypt and Pharaoh's judgment leading to Israel's exodus. If Pharaoh and Egypt was not rejected, there would not be an exodus event. There would not be a redemption of God's Old Testament people. And in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is writing to explain how the rejection of the Lord Jesus by most of the Gentile or most of Israel has actually led to the salvation of not only some believing Jews but also Gentiles. Look in verse 24. And it says, Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. The reality of the Gentiles being included as God's people is enormous. God's power and glory are shown in that the boundaries are being erased between these two people. And God is calling through the Lord Jesus a new people, both Jew and Gentile. Now, it's really incredibly hard to really, to explain in that period of time the Jew-Gentile relationship. Maybe the best way I could explain it is the same relationship that, that present-day Israel has with Palestinians, or with the people on the Gaza Strip. And yet, through the gospel, 
those boundaries are being erased. And these people are coming together to be a new people of God. And that's one of the incredible things about the book of Romans is that it is a mixed congregation of these people who are Jews who hated these Gentiles over there. And now they're just one family together. And Paul is accentuating that and emphasizing that and showing how that is possible. But we need to remember something about God's judgment. It does not thwart his saving purposes. That the fact that some people are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ is actually opening a door for others to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how God works in his saving purposes. And it's it's an incredible thing. That even in rejection, even in judgment, it will not be lost. God will use it to make his power known, to make his glory known, and to bring people to himself. And so Israel, they can reject God all they want to. First century Israel, reject God all they want to. All that's going to do is open up the floodgates for more people to come to know Jesus Christ. So this is how God is showing how he works in this very incredible way of showing both his judgment and his salvation, both his wrath and his glory to bring people to know him. And then the last part of this, very quickly, in verses 25 through 29, is basically scriptural support. He's making scriptural support for everything that he's saying. So he quotes Hosea in verses 25 through 26, He quotes Isaiah in verses 27 through 28. And then again, he turns to Isaiah to help him as he ends it. So to support the assertion of this, that both Jews and Gentiles are God's people by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, Paul turns to the Old Testament to make his case. And again, the charge that we saw all the way back in verse 6, has God's word failed? And so what does Paul do in Romans 9 through 11? He saturates it with the Old Testament to show how everything that I'm saying is in keeping with how God's always worked. God's word has not failed. In fact, what Paul's saying is the opposite. God's word has prevailed. It has prevailed. And so from the Old Testament, Paul argues that it was always God's purpose to redeem in and through the Lord Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. So Paul points to Hosea's wording, to show the inclusion of the Gentiles in verses 25 through 26. And and look with me there. Let me read this text. He says, also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There you shall be called the sons of the living God. So I think we can probably figure out why he used this text. There were these people who are not my people, and now they are my people. Who's he talking about? The Gentiles. The Gentiles who are not my people, now by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are my people. And the same thing could be said of anyone that's sitting out here who does not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not God's people. But if you repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus, you can be his people and to be his children. And then in verse 27, he quotes Isaiah He's emphasizing that God has a remnant. There is, within Israel, there is a remnant of faithful Israel, believing Israel. And so he uses Isaiah to make this case. Though the number of the children of of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be saved. 
So going back to what we saw in um, earlier in Romans 9, where Paul makes the case, not all of Israel is Israel. So there, Israel is as many and as numerous as the sea, but there is a remnant within them who is faithful to God and who have received his Messiah. And then verse 28, for he will finish the work and cut it short and righteous because the Lord will make short work upon the earth. And then in verse 29, and it says, and Isaiah, and as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of, of Sabah had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah and we would have been made like Gomorrah. And so the point that Paul makes from this citation, especially uh, as it relates to the, the usage of seed, which is a faithful few of Israel still remain. If the, God had, is being kind to Israel, he's being faithful to Israel, he's being patient to Israel, he allows a seed to remain instead of treating them like Sodom and Gomorrah like they deserve to be completely demolished because of their unfettered rejection of Jesus Christ as Messiah. So in spite of the tragic situation, their unbelief, God is still faithful to keep his word. And God is showing power and glory, both in his judgment and mercy, and even in judgment, God is saving a people in and through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that what Paul has, in my estimation, what Paul has done is he has painted this majestic picture that the potter who has the right to work as he pleases is working towards saving purposes to bring a people to himself, to call a new people that's both Jew and Gentile to himself. To call people who were once afar from God, who, un, who were unbelievers, now to become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ so that they could become the children of God. And the reason that you're saved today is because of God. Because of the gracious work of God. And how maybe God, the reason that you're saved is a consequence of how God has used some vessels for dishonor to show his power in judgment And you're saved because of someone else's rejection. Because nothing is lost on God. Nothing thwarts his purposes. Everything advances his saving purpose. Because God is God. And he deserves to be worshipped as God. And to be declared as God. And we should be grateful that God in his grace and his mercy has made many of us today, I believe many of us today, vessels of mercy to image his glory and has prepared us for the glory beforehand. But some of us at this moment may be vessels of wrath, destined to the end of destruction. But God is patient. God is enduring. God has brought you to this place to hear about Jesus and to call you to himself so that you could become a vessel of mercy to show his glory. Let's pray.